You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Days and convicted. Pool party radio. Show King. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Booth. Awful Flips. Pod Awful. In 1492, you came up on these shores. 700 years educated by the Moors. 17th century genocide and the gun. Little passage blessed to market the Africans in the so-called lands of God. My kind were treated hard From back then until now I see and you agree We have been a misrepresented people From back then until now Just see my family tree We have been a misrepresented people We have been a misrepresented people. I want a show that will make headlines. The Huxtables, Cosby, a genius, revolutionary, but we can't go down that road again. The network does not want to see Negroes on television unless they are buffoons. Have you ever thought about just quitting? I have a contract. The only way I get out of that is if I get fired. And that is what I intend to do. I know you are familiar with menstrual shows. Variety shows. Like in Living Color. Right, right, right. That was dope. Man, Tan. The new millennium menstrual show. We're going to need a little more money for this. This could be bigger than Friends, Ally McBeal, even my boys Amos and Andy. Yeah. You're putting white actors in black face. We are using black actors with blacker faces. This fall. Right on, man. Yeah, great show. You won't believe what's coming to your television. Sleepin' Eat and Mantan are lazy and unemployed. But we are certainly not saying anything about the entire African-American community. What's sweeping the nation. And what's coloring. The way you see the world. Yo, we can't let this injustice go by, man. Not this time, man. You know what I'm saying? Nah, man. You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying?
Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me is the ever-affable Mr. Mike White. I'm going to do this entire episode in whiteface. That's nothing new, Mr. White. Anyway, joining us for extra special guest from the Mitten, Michigan-based writer and radio personality, Jay Scott Smith. How you doing, sir? Hey now, what's going on? All right. This week, we're talking about the 2000 film from director Spike Lee, Bamboozled. The film centers on television producer Pierre Delacroix, who works at a struggling network. Not happy with his job or his boss, he decides to pull a fast one on the company and create the most racist, exploitative television show in the history of television, Mantan, the new millennium minstrel show. Along for the ride is his assistant, played by Jada Pinkett Smith, and two struggling street musicians, played by comedian Tommy Davidson and great tap dancer extraordinaire Savion Glover, who play the leads in the show as the lazy and dim-witted Alabama porch monkeys Sleep and Eat and Mantan. Bamboozled is Spike Lee's attempt at satire to hold up sort of a funhouse mirror to the American culture and force us to look deeply at how it represents African Americans on TV, film, sports, music, and even fashion. Now, Jason, as our guest, when did you first see Bamboozled, and what did you think initially of the film? I first saw Bamboozled in the fall of 2000. Not not long after it, had, and this is obviously back far enough where it was still on video, on, on VHS as well as DVD. And when I saw it, the first thing that popped into my head was it reminded me so much of Hollywood Shuffle, Robert Townsend's movie from the late 80s, which kind of went to the similar theme, except it was it was a little bit darker. It, it was like the dark humor of Bamboozled is what gets to a lot of people. And I, I, I every time I, I've watched that movie numerous times it it strikes a chord with you and it certainly gets it definitely gets your attention i but then i'm one of those people that it's it's a lot harder to offend me than it is to offend a lot of people i saw some of it as funny and very thought-provoking but i've also known people who saw bamboozled and they wanted nothing to do with it once they once they saw it i thought the movie honestly it did hold the proverbial funhouse mirror it was a dark version of hollywood shuffle it really was the 2000 version of it even down to Except, of course, it, it had different things like the, and we'll probably get to this later, like the Mau Mau's being in the movie, for example. And it, it took, it was like Hollywood Shuffle, but taken to that next level. I have seen a lot of Spike Lee films in the theater. Bamboozled was not one of them. I don't know why I missed this one when it was out. I remember the previews and really was intrigued by the idea of it. But for some reason, I just never really kind of caught up with it. And I think really after watching it for the first time, maybe just a few months ago, I think that I actually like the idea of it more than the execution. But I'm sure we'll talk about that more as we go on. I often joke about this, but I think I was one of four people to see this in the theater when it came out, and <laughs> I didn't exactly know what I was going in to see, but the one thing that really excited me in 2000 was I was just coming off working on my own independent film, and I really loved the idea that he shot this whole thing on mini-DV, except for the actual television show parts that were in Super 16, and to me, I thought, here it is, digital filmmaking, the ability to take a consumer-grade product mini dv and actually create a film on it and get it released to theaters now obviously it has spike lee's name on it and that kind of helps with the cachet to sell it but i was really excited about the idea that this was one of the first features shot on mini dv that that got out to theaters so that was the main reason why i went to go see it uh when i saw it i did have some issues with it in terms of i don't think it accomplishes everything that it sets out to do but i think overall i think it's probably one of the more daring films 
that Spike Lee has done. And to be honest, it's, it, it has its moments, and I think he has a lot of good things uh, to say in here. So as for the plot, I think it kind of encapsulated at the top. But um, Might as well start at the beginning. I mean, it's an interesting way that the film kind of – uh, presents itself. We start with uh, Pierre Delacroix in his room and this uh, really big clock uh, on one of the walls. It reminded me a lot of the Hudsucker proxy with that kind of clock theme going through it. And uh, and I'm like, okay, well, is this the whole, it's time to wake up? Is it like a Flavor Flav kind of thing? What, what's going on with this? But really, they don't necessarily go back to that clock or to his apartment too, too often as we're going through the film. And he begins with a discussion or a, a reading of the definition of satire, just so that people can be really sure that this is a satire. We don't want any kind of mistakes with this. Satire, 1A. A literary work in which human vice or folly is ridiculed or attacked scornfully. B. The branch of literature that composes such work. 2. Irony, derision, or caustic wit used to attack or expose folly, vice, or stupidity. Bonjour. My name is Pierre Delacroix. I am a television writer, a creative person. I'm one of those people responsible for what you view on your idiot box. The problem is, not enough of you have been watching out there television land. And then from there, we go into kind of his world. And I have to say, the performance of Pierre Delacroix by um, Damon Wayans very unusual. Um, I'm not really sure if I dig it. It's kind of this, it's like this, uh, it reminds me of like when he does white guys, you know, it's that kind of pinched nasally kind of thing that he's doing with his voice. And he's got this kind of weird affect to it. Um, and a lot of times I can't tell if that's really him or if that's this kind of affect that he is adapting to fit into this world of uh, television production that he's in or what it is. Because we know uh, fairly early in the film that his name really is not Pierre Delacroix and that it's what, Peerless something or other. But really we don't kind of get what was he like before he entered into this world, though Growing up with the mom that he has and the dad that he has that we see in the film, I don't necessarily see him putting on airs as early as um, as he might have, just because his dad is very salt of the earth. I think what's interesting about um, the performances in the film, and specifically, I would say, sort of the kind of the two leads. I guess if you want to consider them sort of mirror images of each other, one obviously is Damon Wayans. And the other is Michael Rappaport. And in a way, they're both affected, but at the opposite extremes. And to me, I think it works within the idea of having a satire because these characters need to be cartoony. It needs to be over the top at times in order for it to work. And we've talked about that before with with other films that are satires. And sometimes they just don't quite work because either they're too cartoony or they're not cartoony enough. And But at the same time, I also think that's, that Spike Lee is really making a comment on – sort of that passing idea that we 
you know, you often see in culture where it's like, okay, well, you know, this black guy's trying to pass. He's speaking, you know, he's speaking well and he's dressing well mm-hmm. and all of this stuff. And then Rappaport, of course, on the other end, has that horrible line where he says, I got a bunch of pasty ass white boys and girls right for me. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I grew up around black people my whole life. I mean, if the truth be told, I probably know niggas better than you. And don't go getting offended by my use of the quote-unquote N-word. I have a black wife and two biracial kids, so I feel I have a right. I don't give a goddamn what that prick Spike Lee says. Tarantino was right. Nigger is just the word. That's the other end of the spectrum. And it's just it's just horrible sort of uh, where these both of these characters sort of pick up this affect and, and sort of carry it forward. I guess I'm coming from, and obviously coming from the black man's perspective here, is that I could see where they were going with Damon Wayans' character in that movie, it's almost as if he's trying to he's trying to leave who he like the other side of who he is behind. I mean, you look as you look at obviously when you have the character Paul Mooney playing his father, and he's trying to distance himself from that side of who he is, and essentially trying to pass. I mean, I mean, we and, and when you're a black person who who quote unquote speaks well, something I've heard more times than I'd like to have heard in my life. Colin Powell can't be president. You know, I can tell Colin Powell can't be president. Whenever Colin Powell on the news, white people always give him the same compliments. Always the same compliments. How do you feel about Colin Powell? He speaks so well. He's so well-spoken. He speaks so well. I mean, he really speaks well. He speaks so well. Like, that's a compliment. Speak so well is not a compliment, okay? Speak so well some shit you say about retarded people that can talk. Well, what do you have a stroke the other day? He's a fucking educated man. How the fuck you expect me to sound? You dirty motherfucker. What are you talking about? He speaks so well. Said in almost kind of a condescending, complimentary tone, if that's even possible, it is that's what they were going for. It was almost like he was trying to make himself out to be better than what he was, and that no matter how black I may appear, I'm really one of you, and you really can't accept me. And and down to the Michael Rappaport character, which which is interesting because I don't think that's that really that far off from who Michael Rappaport actually is anyway. <laughs> that because <laughs> he's played that character a few times in a few different movies, and and the the Michael Rappaport character is is the opposite. He is that he is the the white guy trying to quote act black, talk black. Be I'm married to a black chick, I have biracial kid. It, it's those two characters really do sum up in a way. Kind, it, they they fall into that satirical. It, it's, it's like you mentioned the cartoony thing. It falls into that satirical white guy, the satirical the the, the satirical sellout black dude, the satirical wigger that 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 uh that Rappaport's trying to go into. It watching that. I mean, for me, I've seen that. I've seen that a few times in movies, so it wasn't as. New of a thing to me, but it was an interesting spin on it where you kind of see with Damon Wayans' character how he's tormented internally by what he what he's trying to be and also battling who he quote unquote really is. It's not only just in film, but I've seen that in real life where more I would have to say obviously growing up where I did, more the the white guy putting on mm-hmm. the act and then hearing uh, the, the thing that was always so just forehead slap – was you would have a guy that would put that on and then you would end up with sort of the John Turturro uh, speech in Do the Right Thing. Can I talk to you for a second? 
What? Tina, who's your favorite basketball player? Magic Johnson. Who's your favorite movie star? Eddie Murphy. Who's your favorite rock star? Prince. You're Prince Ross. Bruce. Prince. Bruce. Tina, all you ever talk about is nigga this and nigga that. And all your favorite people are so-called niggas. It's different. Magic, Eddie, Prince are not niggas. I mean, they're not black. I mean, let me explain myself. They're, they're not really black. I'm, I mean, they're black, but they're not really black. They're, they're more than black. It's, it's, it's different. It's different? Yeah, to me, it's, it's different. You know, deep down inside, I think you wish you were black. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Laugh if you want to. You know your hair is kinky than mine. It's it's all that's always interesting seeing something like that. And I always I tend to go back. Do the right thing it was one of my favorite movies because of that. And almost like that fourth wall being broken multiple times in the movie with them kind of you kind of got to see what they're really thinking. The it, the go the the go the the go the go back to Africa and all that. It hits. It, it was one of those things where it hits like hits you right in the chest type of thing with the amount of open and it's almost like the openness and the realness of it. And I think that's what they were trying to go for in Bamboozle, but there was a part of it that kind of missed in that aspect where it almost seemed as if you were kind of, it was almost heavy handed as opposed to the subtleties that were there before you kind of bring it to that crescendo of, yeah, this guy is basically saying, well, like you mentioned, well, my favorite athlete is Michael Jordan, but Michael Jordan doesn't count. And he's different. That, that's where you were kind of – I could see where they were going with that one. So eventually what happens is he ends up – Pierre Delacroix ends up in a meeting with Mr. Dunwitty who is played by Michael Rappaport. And he basically tells him that, look, you know, this work sucks. You need to do something else. You know, we're the laughing stock of the television networks. Our shows are doing horrible and we've got to come up with something new. And at the same time, him not being happy with his job, he decides to go home and try to figure out, okay, well, what can I do to get out of my contract? I can't quit because I have a contract and then they'll sue me and then I'll be basically – I won't be able to work and, and all this stuff. So what's the next best thing? The next best thing is basically to create something so far out, so ridiculous and so horrible that it will basically end my career at this place, that I'll, they'll have to fire me. They'll have no other choice. So he goes home. And gets this sort of eureka moment related to minstrel shows and blackface and all of the uh, horrible caricatures that we have seen in culture over the last, you know, 150 odd years plus of black folks and decides to kind of basically condense them all into sort of a frozen orange juice concentrate and then serve it on the air. Right. So so he presents this because he's often running into on the street. Man Ray and Womack, played by Savion Glover and Tommy Davidson, who are just two – we almost get the feeling that they may be homeless street performers. And he goes, aha, I've got it. I've got a comedian. I've got a tap dancer. Put that together with the most awful stereotypes we can get, present the show, and really sell this up. Really sell the idea that this is what people want. Okay, okay, no, no. Well, what's the name of the show? We need something that we could sell. Man Tan. The new millennium minstrel show. Man Tan. The new millennium. I really, really like to see. You, you know how I know? I'm getting a boner. The background idea that his character has is that this is so negative that they have no choice. But to put it on the air and then it becomes another, as he says in there, 
Homeboys from Outer Space or Secret Diary of Desmond Pfeiffer, all of these shows that lasted for a little while but were so notorious in terms of their time on the air for negative stereotype. It's interesting because that was – I mean that's always going to be an issue to, to a lot of people in television and in terms of movies. And it's, it just depends on the different different time periods. You mentioned Homeboys. I still remember Homeboys in Outer Space. And the first time I heard of Homeboys in Outer Space, I thought it was one of the most ridiculous ideas ever. And it lasted, I think, a season or a season and a half before they finally canceled it. There, these the Desmond Desmond Pfeiffer set off such an uproar when they even came up with that idea that I was surprised it made it more than one episode before it even got run off the air. But I mean, you go back to I mean, aside from the 1980s where you had the Cosby Show, which strangely enough was panned by a lot of black critics because it wasn't quote a genuine enough account of what a black family was, which is almost the exact same complaint they had about good times in the seventies when they felt that that wasn't an accurate depiction of a black family either. It, it is always going to be that way. You look at today with, I mean, Spike Lee's had issues with Tyler Perry. A lot of us have issues with Tyler Perry. I mean, admittedly I have issues with Tyler Perry. That's I've, I've seen people compare Tyler Perry to the Pierre Delacroix character because it just seems as if he was going out of his way to make something so offensive and it caught on. And that's where if I the, the message in Bamboozle is an interesting one in terms of shining that light on how how blacks or African-Americans, depending on who's listening, are portrayed in, in television and in film and what he was shooting for. And I, and I think that's that's the message that at least came across to me, even if the execution wasn't the greatest, is, hey, we got to let let's show what we can do here. Let's take this thing. Let's take this thing to that next level and see if this will work. Because clearly, no one would really, believe, no one would really buy seeing this sort of foolishness on television or foolishness on screen. And of course, that's exactly what happened. They believed, they fell for it. And as we saw in the movie, it became a, it really became like a cash cow for this guy, which is just stunning, stunning to me anyway. And his relationship to the show seems to change throughout the film. And I guess it's kind of him realizing that what he has created is a monster um at first you know he can't really believe that they're actually going for it that dunwoody is super enthusiastic about this kind of thing when they shoot the pilot he is you know gobsmacked that it actually kind of goes over and then it's like he keeps trying to derail the train that he's he's put into motion and at times he seems to be okay with you know, the fame that's coming out of this or the idea behind the fame and everything. He, he imagines himself getting all these awards and all this kind of stuff. And then at the same time, he really detests exactly what's going on with this whole thing. So it's, it's, his ambivalence is kind of strange to me because I never necessarily know where Pierre is coming from as far as, you know, what, what's motivating him and what his attitude is in particular about this, because then also you kind of throw in this like romance that may or may not necessarily be working because he's got this assistant Sloan, uh, played by Jada Pickett Smith, who is kind of wedged into the film a little bit. And she becomes the center of interest between Delacroix and, um, the Mantan character, and um or man ray he's not yet mantan at this point where we're talking in the in the film but just the the this kind of love triangle thing that they have going on in here it doesn't necessarily work for me either but it's it it adds another level as far as what is motivating pierre um 
to, with his attitudes towards this show. That's something that I had a problem with throughout the film too, is that I sort of feel that, and, and I don't know if it's the editing or if it's the way the script was written, or maybe I'm looking at it wrong, but I agree with you that at times, like like the original concept was, I'm going to create something, and it's going to derail my career and get me out of here. That's the whole point. The whole point is to get out of this place, and then at the same time, it sort of feels like he vacillates between being repulsed by his own creation and at other times embracing it. And I'm I'm not sure how to sort of wrap my head around that if i should accept that he's sort of conflicted and confused and that sort of plays into this also um um performance of his own self as we talked about in terms of his voice and mannerism and things like that because he is confused so therefore of course his creation you'd be confused about that as well or um is that just bad uh directing or bad writing when it comes to the actual show itself it i don't know if if Spike Lee is doing us any favors when it comes to the show. I mean, well, first off, I love that he kind of pulls the the rug out from under us by making the rest of the movie, frankly, it looks like shit because it's shot on video. Um, but then when you get to the show itself, it looks beautiful. Shot on film, the colors are so vibrant and all this stuff. So I love that he's kind of you know getting our expectations and just pulling it out from under us. But it doesn't necessarily help that there's a lot of horrible things that are going on with the show, especially when it comes to, you know, the band is the Alabama porch monkeys and all this kind of stuff. But some of the show is like actually genuinely funny. Like the whole thing of, I am my own grandpa. I mean, that bit is a killer bit and it's been around forever. And I, I love the bit. A lot of troubles lately. Oh, what? Uh-huh. I'll be that. I don't know who I am. Aww. Aww. Well, ow. Be an Alabama punch. Monkey's on. At least you know who you is. Years ago, I married a widow who had a grown-up daughter. My daddy visited us often, fell in love, and married her. Thusly, he became my son-in-law, and my stepdaughter became my mother because she was my father's wife. That's right. After that, my father's wife gave birth to a son, which became my brother and... My grandchild, because he's the son of my daughter. I ain't jiving. Now, accordingly, my wife was my grandmother because she was my mother's mother. Man, Tan, I was my wife's husband and grandchild at one and the same time. And lo and behold, as the husband of a person's grandmother is a grandfather. That's right. I became my goddamn own grandfather. Oh, holy mackerel. Listen, eat that show. You said it could. Oh, is That whole exchange and stuff is actually genuinely funny. So it's like, you know, okay, maybe if the show were even worse and just not funny. I mean, there are so many genuinely unfunny TV shows and, and performances that aren't necessarily playing on race. They're just not funny. I mean, they could have gone out there and reenacted scenes from Friends, because if you want to talk about not funny, there you go. <laughs> I still, to this day, have not understood the allure of the show Friends, but that sounds like a, another conversation altogether. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to Friends. I didn't want to go to Another World, or not Another World. What was that one with, uh, oh, Dwayne Wayne? The, oh, a different the, world. A different world, yeah. Because actually I found that kind of funny at times. So. 
<laughs> might have fit in with with the with the theme a little bit more but but yeah so i didn't necessarily see i mean there are real a lot of really horrible things in the show but then that there are some good things in the show too it's just like oh come on just make it all bad you know it's like it's kind of like i don't know i i can see him going for like a springtime for hitler but then he kind of pulls back a little bit he doesn't want to go all the way which is funny that you bring up springtime for hitler because he says on the on the commentary that it was the producers a face in the crowd sunset boulevard and network and network is an obvious lift because there's this whole thing where um man ray is as mantan has this whole speech about go to your windows and yell out cousins i want you all to go to your windows Go to your windows and yell out, scream with all the life that you can muster up inside your bruised, assaulted, and battered bodies. I am sick and tired of being a nigger, and I am not going to take it anymore! Sick and tired of being a nigger? What? And he basically does the whole Peter Lynch thing but sort of recontextualizes it within his own scope of what he's doing on the show that's why when i made the comparison between this movie and hollywood shuffle which is the one that i just constantly kept thinking of when i when i originally saw the movie and anytime i think of it i still think of robert townsend's hollywood shuffle is the internal conflicts in both of those movies were there but it's just that they went in two different directions it was almost like the happy ending had to come in hollywood shuffle while in this one it seemed like he never was he, he never was really he never really got all that he wanted in terms of okay maybe I'm not happy doing this and I'm and man, I'm sick of being a nigga and I'm sick of I'm sick of doing this it that internal conflict is is what really is what kind of held me through most of the movie actually was what was seeing that and just trying to get an understanding of is the, the the torment that you could possibly have going through this where you're thinking I'm making all this money and I'm world famous and I'm completely selling out my race and making a buffoon out of myself at the same damn time. It, it's it, it's hard. It was hard watching it. And I think that's what made it for me because, again, I like watching stuff that makes you uncomfortable. I like saying things that make people uncomfortable. And it was one of those things where I got a little uncomfortable watching it, but I couldn't pull myself away from it at the same time. Because a lot of there are a lot of black people that have that internal conflict and they're not all famous who have that internal conflict of I'm doing this because people enjoy it and I feel that people will accept me. But at the same time, I hate every second of it. And that's this. This was one of those things that really drove it home, at least for me, it drove it home. And that's the thing, you know, obviously with the use of the footage within the film of older stuff, you know, Step and Fetch It, Mante Moreland, things like that. But I also think that one of the things that's kind of genius about the film was that he makes the connection to a lot of hip-hop culture in this film with the Mau Mau's and all of that and sort of sees uh, and uses the hip-hop culture in, in some ways as saying, this is just the same thing. It's just... You guys have made you, – you're just not either smart enough or you don't care enough to actually put that understanding that you're actually mocking on the same level and doing the same sort of uh, damage, I guess, is really what he's saying in the film. And, and that's – and honestly, that's the conversation that's been going on in the hip-hop community 
that's the conversation that's been going on since at least 1990, maybe 1997, 1998 or so. And every year it gets a little bit louder and a little bit worse where you're saying you're you're making a mockery of the culture where one could argue at the time where you may say, OK, no, nah, not really. It's not really that bad. Today, this movie would really this movie would have a whole lot more ammunition today than it even than even 14 years ago. When you, when you think about it, where now it's it's things have changed a lot. And I can see where the integration of the hip hop culture into, into it might have rubbed a few people in the rap community the wrong way. But at the same time, there was a point there. And there was also on that soundtrack. I remember the, the bamboozled soundtrack. There was the, the, the song Black is Black that the Mau Mau's performed. And you if you listen to that song, it it goes it, it's not one of those there's no nothing subtle about that song it goes right at you saying this is exactly what our problems were even down to having MC Search being one of the rappers in the song Yo, who that you right there blue eyes and black hair killing with a rhyme or the bottom of my night air. so quick son pick one you don't want me to finish or quickly take your 1950 and do you like the british head on a spear contusions in the air for africa maxima i'm gonna drive you out of here mr 116 want to kill yourself esteem born from part devil part cracker from queens knowledge that we drop you don't even build with that's like me winning a rap grammy giving it to liz smith who the crew m-a-u m-a-u go ready about to attack the track with black is black there were so many layers to the onion of this movie and i think i'm probably from just having really watched it a few times recently it's almost as if they were trying to get every message in there in the amount of time and and some things either got lost in translation or it didn't hit hard enough because it, it didn't hit hard enough because they were just trying to get too much in at once this, I think, goes back to the conversation, Mike, that we had about Zardoz. Remember on Zardoz, I was like, you know, this film, I don't know if I necessarily enjoyed it when I was watching it, but it gave me a lot to think about and probably has ideas for like five more films in it. And I think at times this is sort of the same thing where, as as Jay was saying, you know, just put so much stuff, you know, he's just packing the sausage casing here with so much stuff that, you know, most films wish they had half of the ideas that this thing does. Well, yeah, even just taking, you know, you listed off, what, five, six movies that this kind of plays on, and just taking two of those things and mixing them together, just taking the producers and a face in the crowd and putting those two things together, but then you add these other things to it as well, you know, it, it, it does become almost a little too much. And then the, the disc, the DVD is bursting with extra scenes, which add even more shading to different things. And there's some scenes where it's just like, well, I really wish they would have kept that. You know, I don't know if that was for pacing or for time or what it was, but there, there's just even more stuff deleted from the disc. I mean, this thing just was so full of, of ideas when it went out. And not only that, but I mean, the, the stuff once the show is going, and then we have the sponsors. We have the the bomb spots for the malt liquor, and we have the Tommy Hilniger spots and all this stuff. That reminded me specifically of Putney Swope, where in Putney Swope, Robert Downey Sr. is doing all these ad parodies, and of course we talked about that on that episode. And another one that comes up, although he doesn't mention it, that kind of reminds me of sort of this um, – I guess cynicism of television, especially the the suits, and I know it's a Christmas film, but Scrooged and sort of the attitude of uh, Bill Murray's character in there, and sort of how he sort of looks at the audience and sees them as stupid, and that you need to scare them into watching the show and all of this stuff. So, like I said, there's so many different things that kind of come into this space that just keep um, 
that, 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 like I said, I mean, I can understand where somebody watches this and goes, man, that's, that's a jumbled mess. And at times I do think it is, and I don't necessarily know if it's successful in the end, but like I said, I appreciate it much like I appreciate Putney Swope because I don't necessarily think Putney Swope is a, is a great, um, success, but I think there's a lot of things in there that I really appreciate because he does bring up a lot of ideas and and get you to think. I like the character of Honeycutt and how he kind of goes through, he's the only thing that really kind of bridges the advertising to the actual show itself. You know, before we really even see him as a hype man, I think we're seeing a spot for the bomb with him as the spokesperson. Clinical testing has found that Viagra doesn't work on black jocks. That's why our scientist has developed the bomb for you. It makes you feel like a man, yo, and it makes them bitches feel like natural women. I mean, ho. It makes my nature rise. I want to get fucked up. And just the way that he kind of moves up through the ranks as this is going on, because at one point there's a falling out between the uh, the Tommy Davison character and the Sevon Glover character, which is kind of weird. I have to say that's one of the things for me that doesn't work as far as like it's really feels like it comes on quick, and then this the uh, Tommy Davison character just disappears from the film altogether, um, but. Regardless, then you know Honeycutt kind of moves into that position, and then after they get rid of Mantan later on, it's like, okay, Honeycutt, you're the man now, and just this kind of idea of the guy who's always there at the right time and just doing—he's the 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 greased wheel, you know, he's the one that's just kind of playing and and biding his time and doing everything that the the people at the network are asking him to do. No questions asked. He is just right there for him. I do agree with that. Where it almost seems like it almost seems like that the the Honeycut character and actually and I'm going to go back to the spots the uh, the commercial spots as well because again that's another one of those parallels I well I noticed even and even in other black films of that time really between maybe the end of the 80s to about 2000 or so you get those satirical commercial spots in those movies and it makes I mean the the Tommy Hill nigga spots were. It, it, or the Timmy Hill nigga, excuse me. It was supposed to be t- Tommy Hill nigga, but the Timmy Hill nigga spots, for example. Timmy, 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 Timmy. Yo, my name be Timmy Hill nigger. I was born and raised up in Strong Island, so you know I know all about my peeps. My niggas in the ghetto. I designed and owned Timmy Hill nigger 125% authentic ghetto activewear. Hill nigga keeps it real. Timmy's got all the latest gear. Again, it was another one of those things that you laugh at it. But you laugh and you kind of feel uncomfortable laughing at it at the same time. It's not like the the soul glow spots from <laughs> from coming to America, which were just genius. <laughs> but it, in in just terms of what they were doing and what he did in that movie was again, yes, it was funny and yes, it had kind of a a message to it. But it also hits you right. It hits you kind of like, geez, I'm laughing at this, but I feel really bad laughing at it at the same time and. And even now, it's the and even looking at going back to the Honeycutt character, it's the it's the same thing. He was kind of, as you mentioned, kind of like that bridge in a way. And obviously, when obviously when when you when you have to replace Mantan, it's it's thinking, okay, now what do you do here? You knew at that point every I mean every movie like that and every TV show 
that was meant to in every TV show parody and stuff like that. You have that point where the scene changes. It's almost like how on a TV show when a main character leaves, the guy who replaces him is never going to be as good as the original. And that was the point. It was almost like finally you saw it where they reached that that point where okay now we've gone to we've all pretty much this thing has run its course and now what do we do next considering we've made this edgy show that or this racist show where where do we go from here and you and as you as you watch the movie it almost makes me wonder like when you get toward the end how are they going to finish this thing because where do you go at a certain point well also i saw the honeycut character as maybe spike making a statement that if these guys aren't bought into the idea of doing this sort of exploitation work, that there's going to be somebody there to do it, that there's no way you could ever kind of get rid of it because there's always someone waiting in the wings to become the next star, even if it means sort of being denigrating. I was working on this piece because I was sitting there going, I realized that when I was looking at it, that uh, niggas is a beautiful thing, you know? Uh, and uh, okay. uh, that and you know, so it came to me, it just came to me, you know, waste away your life and linger. Sitting at home watching Jerry Springer. <laughs> Do black face and a monkey shine. And cut a jig at the same time. <laughs> Cause niggas is a beautiful thing. Niggas is a beautiful thing. Hit me. This is a beautiful thing. Niggas is a beautiful thing. Then the artist be getting in with that. I'm, I'm you know. digging that. I'm, I, I am so digging that. Yeah, I totally see that as what he's trying to say. Especially that we're seeing Honeycutt in those commercials, the the um, the bomb commercials, which are just so terrible. I mean, not just even the production values, but just you know, the the girls with their asses all flapping around and stuff, and him just talking about you know this is how you get your freak on and everything. I mean, it is just it's that is probably some of the most pointed satire that is in the entire movie. And it, for me, that's the stuff that works the best. And the funny thing is, is that that becomes one of those timeless pieces where if you played that now, people would probably have the same reaction because there's just as many complaints about that now as there were 15 years ago, as there, as there were 10 years before that, even with the objectification of women, especially black women being treated as objects and, and the and of course the the new back. I mean, we were calling it twerking back then before everybody else caught on. Where you have all the the, the twerking asses in the background and everything else. It, it's is one of it, there are there, there were a lot of things about this movie where that message did have it, this movie had the verge of being timeless. But maybe at the same point, what the memo was trying to get across may have been maybe a little bit ahead of its time even because I don't think people were really ready for what that movie was talking about. I thought Miley Cyrus created twerking, just like I, Elvis okay, created I, rock and roll. I know, I know. It, it's kind of like how Little Richard said that Elvis stole rock and roll from him. Miley Cyrus stole twerking from the video girls of the '90s. I mean, it's it is what it is. We have to kind of learn to live with that. We set it up so somebody else can take it from us and run with it. That's our that was our gift to the world. Being, <laughs> being constantly ripped off—that's your gift. Yes, that that's what it is. Some, uh, sometimes you're sometimes you're the hammer and sometimes you're the nail, <laughs> and this is what happened to us basically. Everybody wanna be black, but nobody wanna be black. It confuses me. They all act black, sound black. I hope they start hanging niggas again. I'm gonna find out who's black. <laughs> you know, we've talked in the past about 
um, sympathetic characters, you know, who is sympathetic in this movie. And what I kind of like about Bamboozled is that there really is no sympathetic character at all in this movie. I mean, of our, let's see, we've got at least uh, five main characters going on here. Dunwitty, Delacroix, Sloan, Mantan, uh, I guess you could say Sloan's brother, and then you've got the um, uh, Womack character. And amongst all of those, nobody is perfect. Every single one of them is flawed. And at first, I, I'm thinking that like the Sloan character is going to be this kind of, you know, our Patricia Neal from Facing the Crowd. She's going to be the person who is, you know, the center that we can kind of glom onto, even though she's not introduced right up front. You know, we get. Um, Damon Wayans up front as Delacroix. But then um, even with her, and I know that some people have problems with this, and I kind of do as well. You know, the, There aren't a whole lot of um, strong women characters in Spike Lee films ever, and she seems like she's going to be one of the few Spike Lee strong women characters. And then, of course, he has to undercut her by making her, you know, basically she slept her way to the top kind of thing, or to the middle, you know, not even to the top. But it's just like, ah, oh, okay, you know, but I kind of, I'm of two minds when it comes to that. I don't like that he had to undercut her character, but at the same time, I like that nobody is good in this movie. That is true. There was, I mean, there were likable moments, but there wasn't a real protagonist to get behind. Or or I'll, or I'll use professional wrestling lingo, there's not a baby face to root for here. They're all a bunch of heels. They're all a bunch of bad guys. It's just too, It's just a matter of levels of how bad they are. Because everybody plays this, this role of basically being this happy. They all have very unlikable traits to them. If you go right down the list, they all have something that just doesn't, that doesn't make you fully want to root for them. You want to, just when you think you're getting behind one of them, then they do something that just makes you say, oh, the hell with this dude, that type of thing. The Man Ray character could have been that, but he just doesn't even have enough screen time for that. Same thing with the with the Womack character. Neither one of those guys are there enough for us, and still they don't have – they're not perfect. They're not these you know angelic figures. Well, the one thing with her that I was kind of hoping, as you were saying, that she was going to sort of be the pillar there in some way and have a moral center is that in the beginning she's like, no, nah, I don't know about this, and then she goes along with him. And then she sort of is also playing both sides on it where she's trying to go, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, like they're in these like staff meetings or whatever. And she's like, oh, no, we're not going to go there. But it's like, how far bought in are you? And then one of the complaints that I, I read about this, like you were talking about her sleeping her way to the middle, is that there were some reviewers that were upset that she not only slept with Delacroix, but also with. Man Ray. So it was like, oh, what? That's all she is? Is she just sort of services the males in this in the story? It's like, really? Doesn't she have more to do? Yeah. And then when it comes to her relationship with her brother, I mean, there are some. I can kind of see what she's talking about when she says, you know, you're embarrassing to me and all this kind of stuff. But at the same time, she's not being very supportive of him at all. Who are you revolting against? What are you revolting against? What are you talking about in all them songs? And, so, and our songs, not my songs? Yeah, and the songs. Shit, we talking about fucking revolution. We talking about Man, people look. getting free to fucking America. 
USA, KKK, all that shit. This is the shit we revolting against. And people's hearts is all fucked up. People are stupid in their mind. Stop, please stop. Golly day, you sound what? stupid. You sound retarded. And it's almost weird that she's the one that comes up with the tape at the end that she keeps getting Delacroix to watch, uh, and it ends up being the tape of all these kind of racist image, images through history, because she doesn't necessarily seem like she's that tuned in, even though she's the one who's trying to educate other characters, especially Mantan as we're going through this, and she's talking about, you know, you gotta know your past and you have to know this, and she's the one that's reading the instructions for doing the blackface and all this. But she doesn't, it doesn't ring true for me. She doesn't seem like she would actually care that much to do the research or to know this kind of stuff, because she does seem to be you know, going back and forth as far as being bought in or not being bought in. She doesn't seem to be on that kind of moral high ground the way that she probably should be. She should be somebody who can stand outside a little bit at least and be able to watch the disaster unfold. But as it is, really the audience, we're the only people that are fully on the outside watching the entire uh, events play out. Even though I guess really Delacroix is kind of there with us with the whole use of the voiceover from beyond, you know, him having this perspective um, from, you know, from somewhere out in the spirit world kind of puts him on the outside, but I guess he's right there kind of with us on the outside of the film. I have problems with talking about the way that Spike uses women in his, in his films. The one other female character that I really have problems with in the movie is the Myrna Goldfarb character, who, you know, we know that Spike doesn't necessarily portray Jewish people very well in his movies either. And, like, when she comes in to kind of be the flack for the whole uh, New Millennium Minstrel show, you know, she's got the most Jewish name that I've heard. I mean, I think the only way she could be more Jewish is if her name was Jewy Jewison. I mean, she is super Jewish and just the whole like, well, my parents march in Selma and all this kind of stuff. And hearing Spike's quote unquote defense of that on uh, the, the audio commentary, it was just kind of hilarious to me because he just goes, well, she's Jewish. And so I guess I'm anti-Semitic. And I'm like, yeah, that's not really making an argument. <laughs> <laughs> So I, that one just – that always really rubs me the wrong way. I mean there's there's levels of being uncomfortable in this movie, but with that one, it's just like – I don't know. It, it, there are times where it's just like, okay, Spike, you're talking about how racist and awful all these people are that are inside of the movie. How about you that's making the movie and making this character? It seems like you're kind of – I don't know, not necessarily listening to your own advice on that one, but that's just me. We're going to take a break and play an interview with John Straussbaugh, the author of Black Like You, Blackface, Whiteface, Insult, and Imitation in American Popular Culture, after this. They're 12 miles of bad road, and now they have a microphone and their own show. It's the Daily Grindhouse Podcast, the official podcast of dailygrindhouse.com. Starring G. You tell that bitch who sent you here. How sorry I am, I can no longer be her friend. And the man called Perry. I'm the one that killed Mungan, whooped Hoos, and put Wims in the hospital. All the birds did a tell, five did not the birds, fair Jones, son. Reviewing the hits and the hidden from the world of exploitation, cinema, and beyond. 
featuring exclusive cast and crew interviews. Past guests include John Carpenter, Robert Forrester, Brian Trenchard-Smith, but still no Steve Gutenberg. <clears throat> well, uh, we'll get him someday. We promise. I mean, we promise. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast, available on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, Podomatic, and of course at dailygrindhouse.com slash podcasts. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast, tough films for the rough crowd. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh, us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that fucking burns the coattails and then pisses on them. <laughs> you review all these exploitation, horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one That is one star too many. <laughs> Let me tell you. The worst fucking piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Oh, that was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. You know, I was looking for a little excitement, but I was worried about privacy. And then I found out about Vibrators.com. Vibrators.com has the perfect products for women and men and couples. They have helpful suggestions and information on how to make sure you get something just right for you. Plus, for over a decade, Vibrators.com has never played around with your privacy. While other .coms make their money by selling your information, Vibrators.com never has and never will. And when you use the special code BOOTH, that's B-O-O-T-H, at checkout, you'll receive free priority shipping on any order. That's Vibrators.com. Get a little excitement in your life. Hey, Iris, you know what we should do? We should try to get Fred Olin Ray on the show. Why would he want to come on our show? Hi, this is Fred Olin Ray, and you're listening to the Badasses Boobs and Body Count Podcast. Okay, what about Olaf Ittenbach, Germany's Splatter King? Ah, uh, that'd be great, but I doubt he speaks any English. I'm Olaf Ittenbach, and you're listening to the Badasses Boobs and Body Count Podcast. What about the director of Blood Sucking Freaks? Joel M. Reed. Isn't he dead? This is Joel M. Reed, and you're listening to Badass Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. No, Iris, he's not. Hello, I'm Mike, host to the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. And I'm Iris, co-host of the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. Every week in Iris discuss lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. Mike and I discuss films like The Black Godfather, The Beast That Killed Women, and Biozombie, to name just a few. And every now and then, we get to speak with the people behind all the films we love to talk about. Okay, how about this, Mike? Let's get Andy Sidaris on the show and talk girls, guns, and G-strings. Um, yeah, 
Aristides actually really dead, but we did manage to talk to his wife, Arlene, way back in episode 20. Well, I suppose that's the next best thing. Yeah, I suppose so. So the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast can be found on iTunes, on Stitcher's Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. Just search for the BBNBC podcast to start listening today. You can also visit the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Okay, Iris, did you keep track of the boob and body counts on the film we're discussing next week? Uh, no, I thought you were doing that this week. No, I'm no, I no, uh-uh. no I've seen this. Uh, boy, no, it we're was gonna you. Have, it was you. Uh, look, from now on, let's both do that. Okay, that sounds good. It was a childhood corrupted by endless hours of VHS rentals. We're sick to manage it. You'd love it. In his most formative years, he had seen it all. I could handle anything. Action. (laughs) Karate is not to be used aggressively. But if I have no other choice. Horror. (laughs) And romance. Now, he's decided it's time to go back. For just one more adventure. Humans are such an easy prey. Cole Miller presents... You're the problem, you little shit. The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Join me, Noel Meller, as each month I take an in-depth look at one movie from my collection of ex-rental 80s VHS classics and speak to one or two of the people involved with making them about what the format means to them. The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Thank you. Have a nice day. Download today from iTunes by searching for Adventures in VHS or visit adventuresinvhs.com. I'm a writer in New York. As for the idea for Black Like You, uh, where did it come from? Um, actually, it was from seeing Shirley Q. Licker, uh, a white, gay, transvestite performer in blackface. Um, uh, very controversial in the early 2000s. Um, and that got me thinking about, you know, A, I was shocked to see Blackface still happening, which is why I went to see him. Um, but then B, it got me thinking about the whole history and tradition of it, and I ended up writing the book. So as for the book, it does cover a lot of the, the history, where it comes from, things like that, and the impact? Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried to be pretty comprehensive with it, and, and to show that it, in various ways, the, the, uh, the essences of it still exist in filmmaking and, and pop culture in general to this day. Where does blackface kind of come from? How did the idea to do this develop in America? And is it a truly an American phenomenon, or was it something? Uh, no, not at all. Um, its roots are in uh, Europe. It goes way back, at least to the Middle Ages. White performers in uh, pageants and religious um, performances uh, were performing in blackface uh, to represent uh, an evil character, uh, a foreign character, or a foolish one. In general, so the, uh, at the Feast of Fools, the annual Feast of Fools, the uh, the King of Fools would often be in blackface, 
Um, the Europeans brought that with them to the Americas, where um, it takes on all sorts of uh, extra psychosexual uh, meanings because of the peculiar institution of slavery. Um, and then minstrelsy, minstrel music, uh, arises. That is truly an American art form, and it's the first um, popular culture form from America to go global. It went around the world. Um, starts in the 1820s and 1830s, um, and was kind of the rock and roll of its era. And you know, and and of course, you can see echoes of it in rock and roll, and in rap today, and in and in jazz, and 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 uh, ragtime, and all the popular, or at least most of the popular musics that America has generated since, have some echoes of minstrelsy in them. I think um, I get in trouble for saying that with some people, but I think it's true. As for minstrel music and going in blackface, as you said, it starts in the 1830s or so, you know, pre-Civil War. Yes. What, what was it about this form that you were able to find that was so captivating to people and made them interested and want to, like you said, turn this thing into some sort of phenomenon in some way and during that time? Yeah, it's really quite complex, and, and or another way to put it is quite confused. It doesn't come from, even though it's representing, or it thinks it's representing blacks in the South, it's got almost nothing to do with the South. It comes out of um, urban slums and ghettos uh, in the North, especially uh, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, um, which is where it rises to global um, uh, popularity. Um, and it and it's about for those early minstrels. It's a, it's about their confused relationships of uh, of young white guys, um, many of them of Irish descent, but not all, um, and and blackness and their black neighbors. And there's a there's a lot of love hate in the early minstrelsy. Um, you can see that they really admire black guys and have um, uh, uh, an almost heroic vision of some of them. But at the same time, they've got to make fun of them and cut them because they are competing with them uh, for jobs. They're competing with them for social status. Um, blacks, as always, were on the lowest rung socially, but barely clinging to the rung just above them were young, poor white guys. Um, so there's this very complicated relationship going on that disappears over the years as it becomes more showbiz and ritualized and stylized um, and becomes, in the process, much more straightforwardly racist. And I think that's what Spike is showing in Bamboozled, uh, you know, that later, late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, he's evoking that version of blackface performance. Before it evolves into that, as you were talking about, and, and gets specifically into the race issue, who were sort of, as you were saying, if this was the rock and roll of its era, who was sort of the, you know, the big names, the Elvis or whatever of that, of that era when it came to minstrel? Um, one of the biggest was Dan Emmett. Uh, uh, Dan Emmett wrote or, or claimed to have written uh, I Wish I Was in Dixie, although that's been disputed, but he certainly popularized it. And, and that's a little later, that, but he had been around from much earlier with the Virginia Minstrels. The Virginia Minstrels were sort of the Beatles of, of the era. Um, and and it, it went global almost right away. It's, it's amazing how fast it spread around the world. You know, we think that uh, that only happens in the you know electronic and digital age, but in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, um, black minstrel music was everywhere. People were singing it in Japan. Um, when Americans went to South America, the the marching bands would play it, thinking they were playing our national anthem. 
Um, and, and Dixie, Dixie was popular both in the North and South during the Civil War. Both sides sung it. It was one of Abraham Lincoln's favorite songs, and it was uh, his unofficial campaign song when he ran in 1860. To answer your question, I, I think I diverged there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, it's interesting to hear this stuff because, as you were saying, I mean, we really only think of culture spreading once we have recordings because that's mm-hmm. so much easier to, like, here, put the record on kind of thing. Right. Um, but in that era, it just seems kind of fascinating that this whole culture could take off and go global, as you said. And what what were some of the things that you found, like in terms of the song and presentation? Um, was it cutting to black folks when in the original era, or was it just about putting on a character that didn't seem to have that that racist uh, aspect? Um, it, it was kind of both, um, and. and and more. Um, one of the big early, the earliest of the big songs, um, kind of the hound dog of the era, was Jump Jim Crow. And Jim Crow is this uh, kind of lame, uh, halt, older black man, uh, the, the, the character. Um, but he's not, he's not depicted in any way hatefully in the song. Um, at the same time, there was another big song called Coal Black Rose, which is um, uh, a confused kind of romance um, about a, a black guy and a, and a black woman, um, where it's clear that the white guys singing this in blackface are uh, uh, sexualizing the relationship and are really are already they are um, jealous of black male sexuality, which obviously is a is a tradition that continues for you know up until today. Um, uh, at the same time, they're sort of making fun of him, so it's this very confused. Um, and, and complex love hate attraction uh, retraction going on for uh, a bunch of years, and I think you can see that you know later in other traditions where you know like in rock and roll you see it's it's coming and going. You have Mick Jagger sort of you know basically pretending to be um, a soul singer, um, and it just it just keeps going on. Why do you think that that is in terms of that? I mean, is there a certain freedom in this character or this idea that that black uh, America, whether it be during that era or the modern era, represents some sort of freedom or they have a freedom that, you know, the white establishment that these people are part of uh, don't have in some way? Um, in the early years, these guys aren't the white establishment. They're almost all working class guys, poor guys, their audiences as well as the performers. Um, so the, I, I think it's more that they feel in some ways a kinship with blacks, uh, although I don't know that they would express that to themselves uh, or express that openly. Um, but they feel like outsiders as well. And um, in later years, you know, that changes. But in those early years, um, they are in, in some ways identifying with, with uh, these black figures. Many of, you know, often they have no direct knowledge of it. They have, none of them have any direct knowledge of, for instance, plantation life, um, because they're all, you know, in, in the ghetto in, in cities like New York and Boston. But they idealize it, and they, they see themselves both as outsiders, I think. You know, during this period also is the time when there was a lot of movement towards abolition and what would eventually become the Civil War. And do you think that that sort of plays in the background in some of these performances and songs as well? Um, certainly, by the as the Civil War is approaching, um, there are abolition songs that are, and you know, or pro-abolition songs that are basically minstrel songs just with different sorts of lyrics. Um, 
So, but that's I think mostly um, an artifact of that by that time minstrelsy was had so pervaded popular culture and was so ubiquitous that if you wrote a pop song, it was going to sound like minstrelsy no matter what you did, um, uh, unless you were doing parlor ballads. Uh, and Stephen Foster, um, you know, struggled with that his whole career. Uh, he was writing the minstrel songs, but he wanted to be writing I Dream of Jeannie with the Light Brown Hair. Um, so there, there was that conflict there. Of course, minstrel music and the image of, of black folks that came out of minstrel music had a, had a big impact on, uh, on northern whites. Um, not so much. Uh, abolition tended to be more of an educated um, upper middle and upper class white movement. Um, most working class and and poor whites were in, in no way abolitionists um, because they feared, for, uh, among other things, that um, if you freed uh, the four million slaves who existed below the Mason-Dixon line, they were going to come north and take their jobs. And many newspaper editors and, and uh, anti-abolitionist people kept telling them that the whole time. Um, and as that's going on, as you're getting up to the Civil War, you begin to see the attitudes in, in minstrel music hardening. It begins to get a little more hateful, a little more racist, um, although that still doesn't really, really take hold until more like the 1890s when you get into the what were called the coon songs. Because I was wondering about that, because I know during things like the draft riots and such, yep. there were lynchings of blacks because northern whites were upset that they would have to go fight. And I was wondering if the, the art also reflected uh, a similar tone and attitude. Um, it begins to by then, but it's still relatively, relatively gentle. It's, it's uh, the biggest minstrel song of that era is Dixie, and there's nothing terribly, there's nothing very hateful about that. The other, the the biggest single minstrel song writer of that time is Stephen Foster, and his stuff is tends to be rather nostalgic, and uh, you know he's being nostalgic for a southern culture he knew nothing about personally but um he's still he's not they're not hateful it doesn't really get hateful until later and then do you see that it was this sort of um reconstruction and integration kind of thing that brings that out or what exactly 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 yeah. um by about eight uh, the the first coon song um, written by a black uh, composer, Ernest Hogan. Um, it's called All Coons Look Alike to Me. comes out in 1890. 1890 into the early, through the 19-teens, is really the lowest ebb of uh, black and white relations, certainly in the North, but, but everywhere in the country. I think it's lower even than, you know, in the Civil War era. Um, Reconstruction. Uh, in the South, you have the resurgence of white supremacists and the Ku Klux Klan and all those other groups. Um, the lynchings are, are daily at that point, um, which they had not been before. Um, blacks, millions of blacks flee that to the North, so now, you, so now they are really are competing with white workers for the jobs and for housing. So there's a tremendous amount of resentment now building up in the, in the North among whites. Um, they're banned from all the unions, even the unions we think of as very progressive and, and liberal now uh, were whites only, um, well into the 20th century. Um, and that's when the coon song, which is not, it's very, it's a much more ritualized, very stylized, much more racist and hateful form of minstrelsy, um, it where minstrelsy had been confused and complex, the coon song reduces its black characters to uh, just a handful of, of uh, repeated and repeated and repeated images. That's when you get the chicken and the watermelon and the bulging eyes and all that stuff that Spike 
easy broking in bamboozled. It's interesting when we talk about this era, you know, about, what, uh, 15 years after we get the, one of the first sound films, the first sound film, The Jazz Singer, and we get Al Jolson in blackface. And it, it's interesting that that becomes the first sound motion picture to include that kind of image. Isn't that amazing? I mean, there had been plenty of blackface in silent films. Um, you know, everybody, there was how many versions of Uncle Tom's Cabin was made as a silent film. Um, and it was almost always done with a, a white performer in blackface. And there's all those blackface characters in um, Birth of a Nation. Um, but it, it, it's, a, it, it's a sign of how uh, big minstrelsy still was, 1920s, 1930s still, um, that, you know, the first popular soundie is about uh, a blackface performer. Um, now, he represents that next to that 20th century generation of Jewish performers, uh, Jewish, Irish, German um, folks who, who have adopted the blackface um, tradition um, and, and are using it in different ways yet again. Once again, it's very hard to say that um, Jolson was being hateful in any way, uh, even when it gets, you know, not in that film, but in some of the other films, it gets, it's hard for us to watch, but it's hard. I don't think you can say he was being hateful, um, he, or if he was, he was doing it unconsciously. Um, but it is amazing that blackface was still around and still so popular that, that it appears in that film. You know, also when we talk about the innovations of, of mass media, something like radio and television with Amos and Andy, yep. you know, sort of where does that fit into sort of this continuum as well? Well, yeah, I mean, that's uh, Amos and Andy is the 30s on radio, um, 30s and 40s, hugely popular with blacks and whites. Um, a lot of people thought that Amos and Andy were, in fact, um, black performers, the two guys who did it, but they were white guys. Um, but then when it migrates to TV, it's, an all, it's the first all-black um, TV show, all-black cast TV show. So um, once again, I think you can see that, that, that the, the sociology of it and the politics of it and, and the emotional impact of it is quite confused and, and, and complex. Um, do you want to say that those black performers should not have been doing Amos and Annie? A lot of people do want to say that. But at the time, uh, just as when blacks, black performers were putting on blackface to perform in minstrels and vaudeville and uh, Ziegfeld Follies and stuff like that, um, that's where the work was. And are you going to deny them the work? And I don't think so, in my opinion. You know, you brought up uh, Bamboozled uh, a couple of times, and that's the the episode we're doing this week. And just wanted sort of your take on, you know, the film. What do you think that Spike gets at? And, you know, do you think he accomplishes his goal in that film? Um, As usual, I think Spike sort of loses track about two-thirds of the way through the film, and it becomes a different film. I wish he had stuck with where he was heading with it originally. But I do think he does an excellent job of evoking um, that late model coon show version of minstrelsy. Um, and uh, it, it is interesting that that's, I, I think it's great that Spike took that on, uh, took on, took that on as a topic and, and as a metaphor. Um, I, I'm just not sure he worked the metaphor as fully as he could have. When we look at modern culture, as you were saying, and the impact of minstrelsy into the modern culture, I mean, an, an obvious place that people would want to look is, okay, you know, we're from Detroit, Eminem, white rapper, in yeah. in a black, you know, idiom, hip-hop. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Is that fair to say or is that saying, eh, you know, it's a different time. Everyone can do this, like how white performers did jazz. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, um, mocking or in some way uh, playing against a stereotype of uh, black folks. Well, I, yeah, I mean, Eminem is clearly not mocking anyone. Uh, I mean, not mocking any anyone black in his in his performances. He's evoking. He's he's uh, he's honoring that art form that he loved and wanted to do. Um, and you can say that about jazz performers. You can say that about rock and roll performers. Um, you know, I mean, I, I have a friend who says. Um, Black people innovate and then white people imitate, um, and there is obviously a certain element of that. But they're not uh, like Al Jolson. Uh, they're not doing it. They're not mocking blacks. They're they're evoking them. They kind of want to be them. Uh, they want to at least be uh, as cool as them, as hip as them. And you see that all through jazz and rock and hip hop history. Um, but it, it clearly is. It comes from this. I think the the same. Uh, emotional and social foundations as as blackface did. Um, that doesn't make it hateful and racist. It's just it, it, it's about the relations of whites and blacks and how confused they still are um, in North America to this day. You know, every so often it seems a celebrity or some, you know, frat on some college campus in America does some party and they mm-hmm. get dressed in blackface and the photos get on the Internet and there's an outrage about it. Um, do these people deserve the derision they get for their use of that image? Um, uh, deserve? I don't know. I'm not a moralist. Um <laughs> So who knows? Um, they they certainly get it. What we can see is that that the reaction to that is always quite fierce, and and um, you could at least say they should have known that was going to happen. And sometimes I think they do. I think sometimes these are you know, you know white frat boys who are trying to uh, raise a ruckus, and they do. Um, other times I, it doesn't seem like people like in film. Sometimes a, a white performer will be in blackface still to this day and 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 get in trouble for it and and I'm not sure that that's um such a hot topic that one needs to get all exercised about it but um yeah quite often I it just seems like ignorant white folks um still hateful and still acting hateful and of course we should all react to that you're talking about blackface in film and wanted to see what your take was on uh, Robert Downey Jr and Tropic Thunder there you go see now um there's an example where some some folks found that outrageous and horrible and, and racist and um, others did not. I'm, I'm on the side of the others who did not. Um, I think that even though we're only inching forward, we are evolving socially um, to a place where um, we can see any of those kinds of racial or ethnic or, or gender bending um, performances by professionals in film and on stage with, uh, you know, we can be a little uh, less uptight about them. They're doing it. Um, it's all about context. It's all about how it's being used. That's a clear example, I think, of where some people overreacted. When we talk about blackface in total, whether it be in the 1820s, 1830s, or today, really at the bottom of it, do you think that we're talking about an idealized version of a group or is it, um, or is there something else going on there? Um, no, that's a pretty good way of, of, of um, uh, summarizing it. Um, the fact that so many of the, of the um, white performers 
or you know professional or non-professional who who have done blackface um really had very little personal contact with actual black people they were representing and and are representing to this day but like the frat boys for instance um idealized either in a good sense or a bad sense or, or both images of people they don't really know much about Thanks to John Straussbaugh for coming on the show. You can learn more about his work on our website, projection-booth.com. So we are back, and we are talking about Spike Lee's Bamboozled. So we've talked a little bit as far as you know some of Spike's other work when it comes to what he's been up to and how this really kind of is one of the few um, parodies slash satires that he's doing. What do you guys think about some of his other work as far as that goes? I mean, when I was watching this one, the only other Spike Lee film that came to mind a lot for me was School Days. Yeah, it, it does have a lot of School Days in it. It has it, it. It doesn't quite have the 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 well, I guess Larry Fishburne at the time. It doesn't have the Lawrence Fishburne wake up moment, but it it does have a lot of that School Days influence, a kind of a raw, gritty type of thing going on with that. A little bit of do the right thing, but more it more so it does have that kind of a school days. You almost feel it, it's like the way the movie was shot. It almost makes it feel like you're seeing something you're not supposed to see, type of thing. But the message is just beating you over the head at the same time. <laughs> it, it's very weird. It's like I'm not supposed to be seeing this, but now that I'm seeing this, get the damn message into your head, people. It, it's missing the wake up. But I do see where the school days comparison definitely definitely fits. I think this is the first, like I said, I think this is probably the first of those films that he was trying to do a satire because most of his other stuff was, you know, dramas or whatever. And this also, like Mike, you were saying that you didn't see it in the theater. And I think part of the reason why you didn't see this one in the theater may have been that this was during that period where things were kind of going down for him a bit. I mean, he had like Girl 6 and a few other movies in that period that weren't very good. They did, I mean, I saw them in the theater just because I was crazy and I saw everything in that period. But he, um, it, it was kind of a, it was kind of a low ebb there in the late '90s, early 2000s, and then he kind of started to come back by not really doing his own work because he did the 25th Hour and Inside Man and things like that, and that kind of like buoyed him back up. But those weren't his scripts. It's funny, when I look at his filmography, just how many of these films I have seen of his in the theater, like Clockers, Girl 6, Summer of Sam, um, you know, I think seeing all three of those in the theater are, I mean, Clockers was pretty good, but between Girl 6 and Summer of Sam, I mean, I had a lot of problems with Summer of Sam, and I was just like, I, I pretty much, I think I checked out right around then, and that was right before Bamboozled came out. Yeah, so I, I've been. I admittedly have been trying to forget Summer of Sam because that just uh, that it hit that point where you almost thought Spike was kind of needed to kind of take some time off and step back, or maybe maybe even Bamboozled was seen as kind of a almost a comeback film of sorts. Like this is it's almost like Spike wanted to go back to his proverbial roots because of obviously of Do the Right Thing and School Days and Malcolm X and some of the stuff that had really that really stuck out as some of his best work. And he wanted to kind of bring it back to that. And maybe that's what he was looking at with Bamboozle. 
Well, it's funny you bring up Malcolm X because there's two sort of lifts from the film. One is obviously the speech where the title comes from. Oh, I say it, I say it again. You've been had. You've been took. You've been hoodwinked. Bamboozled. Let us stray. Run them up. This is what he does. But the other is sort of a visual parody of Malcolm X. And that's when uh, Delacroix and Dunwitty are speaking and he's having that whole conversation about, now don't get all upset with me because I'm using the N-word, whatever. I don't care what they say. And he just keeps saying nigger, nigger, nigger over and over again. And then he gets up and starts strangling him. That to me is a visual lift from Malcolm X where he's a porter on the train and there's he's serving them sandwiches and whatnot. And the one soldier who's on the train says something to Malcolm and he's you know, shoves the pie in his face, but it's all fantasy. It's all in his head. So, so it's funny that you bring up Malcolm X because I think that there are certain things that he obviously pulled from his own, you know, kind of borrowed from his own work in some way. Well, and then he makes that overt reference to himself with it. You know, the whole thing of like, you know, Quentin's right. I don't care what Spike says, all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, oh, okay. You know, that there are moments in this, in Bamboozled where I, literally groaned i mean you could listening to me watching that movie it's just like ah really come on (laughs) so there were a lot of those for me it's funny because there are so many times where i think of moments in bamboozled and i'm just like yep i can see what he was going for and and yep that kind of worked and everything but then there are others where it's just like oh man you know it just there's so many sour notes and i don't know if there would have been anything that could have been done to make it more harmonic just because it's such an uncomfortable subject and really i think it almost works better because it is a mess but i don't know then there are other times where i'm just like i really think that this could have been done better i don't know what i would have done to make it better but it feels like there might have been something it, maybe if it was a Robert Townsend film instead of a Spike Lee joint. I don't know what what it would have taken, but like I said, at times I appreciate what a mess this film is because it's kind of a, a glorious mess at times. Well, it's kind of the thing, like I brought up Putney Swope earlier, and to me it lives in that same universe, and even the fact that it's shot on this sort of lo-fi aesthetic with the mini-DV, it almost feels like this movie could have fit into that period in the late 60s, early 70s, where you had New York underground films. And this would have been a perfect accompaniment in that way. And I do like what you were saying earlier as far as the whole idea of taking the the mechanisms of filmmaking kind of out of Hollywood and, you know, using a consumer product to the way that it was used. And, you know, the way that he was able to use the, like, I think they said at some points there were 10 cameras that were running all at once, which, you know, sped up production as far as, you know, not having to do multiple takes for things and all that. And I mean, it was brilliant the way that it was put together. I like that the aesthetic is this kind of crappy consumer product. Um, and, and like I said, how they, you know, sub- subvert us with the, with the beautiful, um, shots of, of the actual new minstrel show and everything. But, uh, yeah, so I, I really like that he was able to do that. And it was, you know, pretty groundbreaking at the time. I mean, at the, that moment, there hadn't, I don't think that anybody had the audacity to use that low of a consumer grade format for, 
you know, a feature, but it was like, there were just a handful of things like time code and a few others where it's just like, it was pretty kind of good to do that. And this is, you know, in those kind of dark days when video was still looking so video, it was before the whole, you know, digital revolution. It's interesting because, and and I've multiple times, I, I, I've already brought up the Robert Townsend films and, 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 and Mike really was, Mike really had a, uh, had a good point there just bringing up the uh just it's almost as if he he was trying to get that message across and maybe if it were a Robert Townsend film where it was more comedy heavy it might have gone over better where it's almost like you try to have the tongue in cheek kind of drama but at the same time you you want it's like you want to have drama but you want to have it be tongue in cheek at the same time and that's not always the easiest thing to pull off you you kind of and and it may have, it it might have existed better if it were a comedy and it was a little bit more organized and you kind of could see the jokes coming but you also see the message and everything where it, it this movie is I liked what he what he was attempting to do I just didn't like the execution of it it was too often where there was a there was a point that could have gotten hammered home in a very funny way or in a very serious way but it's like it was a big swing and a miss at certain points. And then there were other things that, yeah, that hit really well. Like some of the the commercial spots hit really well. And others, it was just like, it's almost as if they had those moments where, even with the LaCroix character, where it almost seemed like Damon Wayans was trying to make a play, trying trying to get something on his Oscar reel, and it fell flat on its face. The other thing with the film, we talk about trying to hit the message home, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it fails. And, you know, two weeks ago, Mike, on Watermelon Man, I, I love Watermelon Man. I think, you know, go back and listen to that episode and I'll, I'll wax poetic <laughs> about it. But but much the same way, I think Bamboozled lives in that same zone where there are just certain aspects of it that just don't work. and Or it's too heavy-handed or certain things don't make sense. But I think if you're willing to kind of move past that, you can really enjoy the film. And I think even with all its faults, I do think it's worth a watch. I like that the the film brings up so many questions and I think, though, that one of the questions that I have is, you know, nothing is safe in this film. Nothing is sacred. And I kind of appreciate that about this film. I mean, there's nobody that is doing things the right way. Like, nothing, it seems like, in any form of the culture is making Spike Lee happy. It's like no, nothing out there is, is okay. I mean, like he, he's lampooning everything. I mean, he's got the, the digs at Cuba Gooding Jr. He's got the digs against Ving Rames. He's got the digs against uh, the PJs with the way that the opening of the new minstrel show is, is animated. So the one thing though, that I kept thinking of while I was watching it was, so who's doing it right? Like, is anybody, doing it the way that Spike Lee would actually like it to be done. Like, is anybody able to entertain anyone? Is, is there a, a black person in America who's able to provide a modicum of entertainment to a white person where there's not like this race exchange that's going on? Because it feels like at times, no, the answer is no, nobody <laughs> can do it the right way. Nobody is going to please Spike Lee when it comes to this kind of stuff. Do you think that there is somebody out there that, that's doing it the right way? Is it, is it Chris Rock? Can we just agree that Chris Rock is the only person that is going to make Spike Lee happy? Or, or does Chris Rock piss him off too? Maybe Chris Rock, and, and in terms of Spike Lee's eyes, 
maybe the New York Knicks, and even they're not very entertaining. But that's for a different reason. I, <laughs> I I'm gonna I'm gonna take the guess that he Spike hasn't always been the happiest individual, and that might be what he was saying: is that nothing works, and nothing at that point, nothing works. The whole damn system needs to be overhauled, almost. That's right. The whole system's out of order. There you go. I'm not going to rock the boat. Rocking the boat's a drag. What you do is sink the boat. (laughs) You know, one of the things that I found really fascinating about the film, and again, it's one of those things that I just don't think that comes off the right way or or gets executed properly, is the whole idea of um, Sloan giving uh, Delacroix the bank and that whole idea of you know tying racism to money and everything, and then the way that his office kind of fills up with uh, you know these objects from the past that are just inherently racist, these horrible uh, portrayals of black culture and black people and everything, and then to find out that a lot of those actually come from Spike's own collection, I, I found kind of fascinating. I kind of wish that there would have been a little bit more, like at one point in the film, like Damon Wayans yells out, you know, like, leave me alone kind of thing. And it's like, I didn't necessarily see them getting up and moving around, which would have been really fucking stupid kind of thing. <laughs> like claymation, them running around. We will get you like the, the Zuni fetish idol from, from Trilogy of Terror or something. But I, I, I almost wish that they had started that earlier and that we saw that kind of building up more and more as the film goes on, this kind of like intolerable level of racism that was out there and that he was kind of adding to with this show and everything. So again, it was an interesting idea, not necessarily executed the best for me, but um, you know, to, to your point, Rob, so many good ideas going on in this film. You know, the one thing I ask from a film is that if, if I don't completely enjoy it, at least it gives me something to think about a few days later. And Bamboozled's given me something to think about for about the last 14 years. So um, I, I think it's successful in that way. Every time I see Bamboozled, it's that I, it, for me, it just kind of stands as one of those movies that might have been a little bit ahead of its time. But just a little bit, maybe a couple of years ahead of where it needed to be because people weren't really fully ready for that message even then. Hollywood Shuffle pointed, poked fun at it, and people were able to laugh at it and say, yeah, this is, it is kind of messed up, and it poked fun at a lot of the black exploitation stuff, which was still kind of hanging around. By the time you got to the late 80s, it, 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 was, it was almost poking fun at it. This took a more kind of dark, humor kind of tone to it, and it didn't quite resonate, where a movie like that now would probably go over huge, but it would also be considered very controversial and piss off a lot of people, and you'd have Tyler Perry basically getting his panties in a bunch on Twitter and everything else. <laughs> but that bamboozled will, it, it, it did, it like Rob, like you said, it makes you think. And I'm coming from the perspective of being a black man and having cringed at times when I see how we're represented on television. I won't say portrayed, I'll say represented. And this movie would have just as much, would make just as much sense now when you look at reality TV and you look at the way that I mean, between the the Real Housewives of Atlanta and Basketball Wives and going back a few years to Flavor of Love and how that they and even Dave Chappelle poked fun at how in the real world you get the you get the 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 five the the five college white people and then the one crazy black person, whether it's male or female, the the one common denominator is that that black person is crazy. And you put them in a place with, with the five white kids and they don't know what to do with them and. 
it, this movie had a place. It does have a place, but I think the I think the reason it might have fallen a little flat with some people is that it just what that that wasn't the time and place. Yeah, you know, there's the whole way that they have these old portrayals of black characters and black people. You know, it's it's as subtle as like a frying pan in the face kind of thing. You know, the bug eyes and the you know like Lordy Mister Charlie kind of stuff. And I think that really the more insidious stuff that's going on in that maybe you know we need to have a, a, a film or, or some sort of discussion about um, maybe not here on this podcast, but at some point somebody needs to have this discussion is exactly what you're talking about is this much more subtle way that we're getting these negative portrayals of, of, of black culture and black people in popular culture that, you know, I mean, cause yeah, you can have homeboys from outer space and that's just like, Oh my God, what the fuck are you guys thinking? <laughs> but then you get like the New York character, quote unquote character from flavor of love. And it's just like, what message is that sending? What message is it sending that I have this person in my living room what what is this what lesson is this teaching and what level of acceptance is coming from this is this good is this bad what is going on but yeah it's like i want to see a little bit more of that than i necessarily want to see you know like the um you know old warner brothers cartoons kind of stuff it's like yes that was horrible that was terrible i understand that and we should never forget that and it does need to be brought up every now and again to say hey listen this was horrible stuff guys we can't forget you know that there this is not a hundred years ago this is 50 years ago 40 years ago 30 years ago and so even seeing like you know kid dynamite from good times and everything it's just like okay yeah that was that was pretty bad at, at what it was on but what's the bad stuff that's on there today and the, and the interesting thing is the whole J.J. Evans character is what is what drove John Amos from the show in the first place. It was he he was so and eventually even Esther Rolls character was so tired of of the and this is 1976. We're not even getting into the, the 80s and 90s and past 2000. This is 1976. They had a problem with how he looked and how he's portrayed. But he, it was similar to what we saw in Bamboozled. He was the buck dancing the catchphrase spewing stereotype that was just the biggest cash cow on the show and was the reason that the numbers went up and they both had this feeling of all this is not going to work and every almost every decade has had a show or two or probably these days 10 that are like that where you watch it and you say to yourself what the hell are you people thinking and and if you're and and you're saying this imagine what i'm sitting here saying watching (laughs) like really Really, this is we're going for this now. This is what we're doing. We're we're having we're having grown women in in very skin tight outfits fighting each other like this is human cockfighting on on television is what this is. These are women who are claiming to be wives of men, but they're not actually married to any of them, and it's it's all one big freak show. This is the message of bamboozled makes total sense. The problem is the movie came out in two thousand instead of maybe 2007 or 2009 or 2010, where it would have been controversial as all hell, but it would have gotten the point across and would have pissed off a boatload of people in the process. And it would have also made people take that uncomfortable look in the mirror that they don't want to take. But I, I, I can I can definitely see that. I really can. It's, this, it's not easy being a black dude watching TV and, and seeing the same old jokes being 
wheeled out in 2014 that were wheeled out that were wheeled out in in 1975. It's it is a little unnerving. You know, for you, I wanted to ask you this: when you were a kid and you watched TV or you went to the show or something, went to the film, you know, what what did you see? as, you know, this is good, this is bad. What did your folks kind of talk to you about in that way of representation? Well, the first movie that, at least from what I can recall, the first movie that came out that really jumped out at me was, aside from The Color Purple, which I had to see that movie again as a a college student to really understand that, but Roots was one of the first movies I saw back in the early 80s where it was kind of the first explanation of the whole where we came from, from the rawest of raw slavery and it and it helped kind of explain some things but i i get to the early 90s and that's when you start seeing boys in the hood and minister society and juice though those kind of the 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 growing up in the hood movies as we like to call them and it portrayed a section of black life that while yeah i grew up in detroit i grew up in the northwest side of the city the neighborhood i grew up in wasn't overrun with guns and drugs it was a really nice neighborhood in the northwest side of the city of Detroit. But if you went four blocks to the north, you were looking at essentially South Central Los Angeles. Or you go three blocks the other direction. You are seeing this. And what I was always told and what I've always lived by is there's no there, – black people, just like any other group of people, are not monolithic. There's always going to be some – whatever you see, you can't totally dismiss it. The whole growing up in the hood in South Central Los Angeles, that's life out there, but that's not what you have to be. You don't have to fe- you don't have to follow what you see on television. You can be different. And and I was obviously I'm a big hip hop fan. And I always kind of laughed when I would hear people dismiss hip hop as, oh, people are violent and you're going out and shooting people. I, I was eight years old listening to NWA. I've never I've never shot anybody. I've never carjacked anybody. I, I don't I, I'm not running around trying to trying to be a thug in the streets. It's it's about having an understanding of who you are. And I respect the fact that that I can have a conversation like this, whether it's with two white guys or two Asian dudes or a or a Latino guy and a and and a Scandinavian, the hell if I know. I at least I'm able to have these conversations and let them be real. Because coming up as a kid, you you saw the different shades of black life. But we were, but I came from a household that always told me just because you see it on TV doesn't mean you, it has to be you. Where we want to be a little bit more like the Cosby's and a little bit less like like the Evanses and the projects in Chicago is what we're trying to go for. But that's I always t- I always treated the film as just that it was a film. It was a representation of one thing, not of everything. And just because you see it on TV doesn't mean that it has to be you. See, that was the issue. Yeah, I grew up in a mostly white neighborhood on the east side suburbs, and one of my friends growing up was was black, still a friend of mine, and he ran into the issue where he was growing up in a mostly white area, and his folks were professionals, like you said, more Cosby show than, than the Evans family, and then you would get kids who would come into the school, middle school and high school mostly, and they were the ones who were raised in the projects nearby who came to our school and they'd be like hey brother what's wrong with you you know why do you talk like that why do you act like that and he had to deal with the expectation of what i guess maybe their experience was like you were saying with sort of the the south central or the hood movies or things like that oh i i still get it <laughs> it's funny is that i still get the 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 funny looks from some people who don't get me and i still get the 20 i call it the 20 questions when i tell somebody i'm from detroit they think i'm referring to the suburbs and I'm like, no, dude, I, I grew up on, on Schoolcraft, northwest side of the city. <laughs> I, I'm really from Detroit. And it catches people off guard because 
you're not you're not used to at least where they came from, quote unquote. They're not used to seeing people like me. The quote, well spoken. He uses big words. Therefore, he's trying to sound like a white guy. The why do you talk like that? Almost like I have a speech impediment or I got hit on the head and all of a sudden I, I came out sounding like this. It's it's a part of the daily life. I don't hear it nearly as much as I used to. As a teenager, I heard it all the damn time. Now, I only get it from the chosen few who kind of look at you a little weird. That those those attitudes are slowly phasing themselves out, kind of like the attitudes toward homosexuals and things of that nature are slowly starting to change, but it's still there and you're still going to have to defend it cuz everyone has this preconceived mold. And and a, a funny thing is, most of the people who would ask me that question would be black. White people just see me, oh, that's that that's J- that's just Jason. It is what it is. But I get those questions from black kids a lot, not as much as I used to, but I still will get it on occasion. And it's still now it makes me laugh or it used to make me angry. Now it just kind of makes me laugh and shake my head. I'm thinking, really, we're still asking this question in 2014. <laughs> like, dude, I have a master's degree. What the hell am I supposed to sound like? Exactly. So I haven't you ever heard Oprah? She talks just like me. <laughs> uh, exactly. Exactly. It's 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 amaz- It amazes people, but it's not as bad as it used to be. It's still there. But it's not nearly as out of pocket as it used to be when when dealing with that sort of thing. I I, I tend to take it with a grain of salt now because I just treat it as a hey dude, look if you got it that big of an issue with it, my check still clears one way or the other. So I don't worry about it. I I go on about my business. But there's still that there's a little there's that level of ignorance is still there, and we see it all the time. But it's better now than it was maybe fifteen twenty years ago. I'm glad to hear that things are are getting better. Oh yeah. It's 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 not it's 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 never racism's never going anywhere as much as people would love for it to racism ain't going nowhere it's still going to be there There's, it's just it's going to be a lot more covert and shuttle off to different corners of of a particular city or a particular state but it's still going to be there but the days of the abject ignorance I mean the out and out ignorance that is starting to disappear but you're still going to have to deal with it it's just a matter of how much you want to put up with or how much you're going to put up with. And that's that's how I kind of carry myself is that you can have your preconceived notions all you want to. I know who I am. And just like a whole lot of other people know who they are. But see, I've read in the paper that we're in a post-racial America because we elected President Obama twice. It, exactly. What what the hell was I thinking about? All the, the racism's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Recession's over. Racism's dead. Homoph- homophobia is no more. Yeah, all's every, good in the hood. Every, everything is right with the world, and, and the Detroit Lions being the Lions is the one thing to keep everything balanced. So we don't we don't go completely off the off the rails here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Attention, hungry housewives. You must see Housewife. Overfed and underloved. She'll try anything. Would you like a drink? Housewife. She has nothing to lose. Well, 3.30 o'clock. Because I'm going to bang the hell out of her and cut her throat. Jeannie Berlin, the heartbreak kid, does it again. You are dangerously ill. I love you. Yafet Koto, as Bone, does it again and again. Don't come calling me names, lady. I'm just a big black butt doing what's expected of him. Housewife. The movie every housewife must see.
close wife. She has nothing to lose. Rated R. That's right. We're back next week talking about the 1972 film Bone, starring Yafet Koto and directed by Larry Cohen, another remarkable film about race relations during this Black History Month that we're looking at on the projection booth. I want to thank this week's special guest, John Strasbaugh, for coming on the show. You can find out more about his work and his book, Black Like You, at our website, projection-booth.com. And also want to thank my good friend and special guest co-host this week, Jay Scott Smith. Sir, what is the latest with you? Well, I'm out here in Lansing, Michigan, working for M Live Lansing. I, I'm the, I am pretty much there covering just about everything. Reporter in a given in a given day, I can cover everything from a shooting to a to an art gallery opening to a basketball game. And I wish I were joking when I say that, but that's what I've really been doing. And of course, I still have. I always will have other interests. I can, I can be found on Twitter at J Scott Smith. That's J A Y S C O with two T's S M I T H. Follow me on Twitter, damn it. I'm I'm pretty much will tweet about anything, but especially if a if a major event, whether it's political or sports, is going on, expect my smart ass to be on there getting after it. And ah, hell, I miss doing radio, but who knows? One day that might change. But hey, I'm out here. I'm I'm surviving in this ridiculous cold weather that we're being held hostage under here in mid Michigan. But it is what it is. It's a part of the. I guess it's a part of Michigan's charm, or at least that's what I'm convincing myself of until to keep myself from going insane before April. So, uh, yeah, that's my that, – but that is it for me. Again, find me on MLive Lansing. Follow me on Twitter at J. Scott Smith. Remember, it's J-A-Y, like J-Z or J. Leno, not just the letter J, at J. Scott Smith. Well, we'll be sure to link over to that for you over at our website, Projection Desk. Our, over at our website, projection-booth.com. Thanks again for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Be sure to go over to our website, projection-booth.com. Leave us some feedback. Give us some info, whatever you want to share with us, be it body stories or your own tales of being bamboozled, whatever it happens to be. And if you want, hey, why not go over to the iTunes store or to the Google Play store or even to your Kindle Fire store, however they do it with Kindle Fire, nobody seems to know, and download our free app, and whatever you do, just make sure you enjoy yourself. Hey man, what, what is it, man? It's KG. Yeah, KG, what's up, G? Yo, man, me and Ice Cube got this movie episode in effect, you with it? Yeah, man, yo, Chuck, man, check this out, man. Kane and Ice Cube on the phone, they won't go to movies, man. You with it, man? Come on, get your ass out the shower. Let's go, man. Burn, Hollywood, burn. I smell a riot going on. First they're guilty, now they're gone. Yeah, I'll check out a movie, but it'll take a black one to move me. Give me the hell away from this team. All the news and views are beneath me So all I hear about is shots ringing out About gangs putting each other's head out So I'd rather kick some slang out Alright fellas, let's go hang out Hollywood or would they not Make us all look bad like I know they had But some things I'll never forget Yeah, so step and fetch this shit For all the years we look like clowns The joke is over, smell the smoke from all around Fuck!
As I walk the streets of Hollywood Boulevard, big and hard it was for those who started the movies, portraying the roles of butlers and maids, slaves and hoes. Many intelligent black men seem to look uncivilized when on the screen. Like I guess I figure you to play some jigaboo on the plantation. What else can a nigga do? And black women in this profession, as for playing a lawyer, out of the question. But what they played, Angel Mama, is the perfect term. Even if now she got a perm, so let's make our own movies like Spike Lee. Cause the roles being offered don't strike me. There's nothing that the black man could use to earn. Burn Hollywood, burn. Now we're considering you for a part in our new production. How do you feel about playing a controversial Negro? Yeah, I'm with it. You mean somebody like you would be Luna Drop Brown, right? Well, it's a servant, Arthur, that shuffles a little bit and sings. Yo, man, what? Ladies and gentlemen, today's feature presentation, Driving Miss Daisy. No, oh, no, man. No. Just, oh, just what I'm talking about. All this turn the dim shit. I'm out Hey, yo, check it out, man. I got Black C's at the crib, man. Y'all want to go check that out? Yes. Yeah. That's the idea. Cool. We could have rolled it from the beginning. Y'all with it, man. Hollywood. Now, I know that uh, it may be hard for some of you liberal-minded, good white folks to write such offensive material. Yet, I want you to tap into your white angst 